In the dark, early morning hours of February 14th, 2000, two different truckers see what appears to be a young girl walking down Highway 18 near Shelby, North Carolina. And as if this isn't odd enough, not only is it an extremely rural area, but the weather is also treacherous. And for hours now, the wind has been howling and the rain slamming down in the cold 35-degree night air. One of the truckers reported that they passed by this girl three times before pulling over and offering help as she darted into the woods nearby. Both truckers would soon realize that who they had seen, an entire community would be looking for not too long after the sun comes up. Hello and welcome. If you didn't know, I'm your host, Catherine, psychic medium and self-worth coach and true crime addict, and this is Murder and Mediumship. If this is your first time listening, I am so glad that you found the show, and if it isn't and you haven't left some stars and a shout out, then head to Spotify and iTunes and spread some love to the show so that it can reach the ears of more and more listeners. Coming in June 2022, Intuitively Aligned is a private membership community dedicated to creating safe space for intuitives stepping into their gifts. We'll have bi-weekly psychic and mediumship practice circles, weekly intuitive tips, and education on manifestation, as well as energetic hygiene. The launching of this group has been postponed to June as we're kind of in the middle of packing for a move and I've fallen behind a little bit. Through May and June, you can absolutely count on bi-weekly episodes and I hope to continue to do weekly ones. But with moving and a crazy schedule in my personal life, it's becoming a little difficult to keep up with the one per week. This is my favorite place to be though, and sharing the stories that haven't been solved and could have been and should have been by now. This is one that I've been asked to do numerous times over and over in the last year, and I've shied away from it simply because there's so much that just doesn't connect or click for me, and I hate putting out information that I can't understand myself. However, Aisha's story deserves to be told as much as anyone else's, so Here we go with the disappearance of Aisha Degree. And if you're watching on YouTube, thank you for joining. This is absolutely back to a regular thing of having the show broadcast on this channel. And if you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts, know that the videos are back to YouTube and soon enough will be a lot nicer than just my pretty face talking on the screen all the time. Okay. All right. Aisha Jaquilla Degree was born on August 5th, 1990 to parents Aquila and Harold Degree, and she had an older brother, O'Brien. I think O'Brien was only about a year older than she was. And in February of 2000, she was a fourth grader at Falston Elementary School. Not much can be found about her friendships at school, but it's my understanding that her family lived just a few minutes down the road from the kids' grandmother, Joanne, and their aunt, Alicia. The whole family seemed to be very involved in their local church, Macedonian Missionary Baptist. And outside of church, basketball, and time with her family, Aisha simply didn't have an extensive social circle. The weekend that lives, the weekend that the lives of the degrees would change forever started out fairly normal. On February 12th, Aisha and her brother both had basketball games, and her team had actually been undefeated all season. Unfortunately, though, during this game, Aisha fouled, and because of this foul, the team had their first loss of the season. While Aisha and other team members cried and were definitely upset, being that they're only about nine years old, by the time they left with their Valentine's treat bags, most were in a much better mood. That night, she slept over at her Aunt Alicia's house with a bunch of her cousins and stayed up 
late into the night giggling and having a great time, seemingly unaffected by the earlier loss at the game. When they woke up on the 13th on Sunday, her parents came and everyone went to church together. Following church, they went back to Alicia's for lunch and some family time. Grandma Joanne had Valentine's Day treats for the grandchildren too. So it really was a fairly normal weekend, all things considered. According to various sources, Aisha's father, Harold, had a second job, and they left Alicia so that he could go work at PPV Industries until about midnight that night. This differs from other sources that I've heard that he was home with them that evening, which we'll get into shortly. On Sunday the 13th, the weather got pretty bad. The wind kicked up pretty strong, and it was thundering and lightning like crazy. Aisha was terrified of thunderstorms, as many children are, and also afraid of the dark. Some sources say that she fell asleep around 6.30, but woke up from the noise of the thunder, so she went to sit down and watch TV with her family, but then the power went out because of a car accident down the road. There are varying times in this timeline, depending on which source you're, you're getting your information from, but whatever time it was that the power went out, her parents state that Akilah had the kids in bed around 8-8.30 and would be waking them up earlier than usual in order to get them both bathed for school the next morning, since she couldn't do it that night. According to Asia's father, he saw her asleep in her bed around 12.30 in the morning. This would be the wee tiny little baby hours of the morning of February 14th, Valentine's Day, as well as the wedding anniversary of Harold and Akilah. The power came back on and he was checking in on the kids and he saw her fast asleep in her nightgown. The house that they lived in as a family was a little bit on the smaller side. So Aisha and her brother actually shared a bedroom and he heard her turning over in her bed sometime during the night as well. However, sometime between midnight and 4am, there would be multiple sightings of her by the truckers who would later report seeing a black female child walking down Highway 18 in North Carolina, roughly one mile from Asia's home. As the morning continued, Asia's mother goes in to wake up her daughter for a bath, only to discover that Asia isn't in her bed anymore. And after looking for her for a few minutes, she frantically wakes up O'Brien and her husband, Harold. Harold immediately calls both the grandmother and the aunt, thinking maybe Asia would have gone over there for some peculiar reason, but no one has seen her, so they call the police immediately. No later than 7.40 a.m. after her mom had called the police, tracking dogs are dispatched with the local police department and a ground search began. However, because of the heavy rains and the heavy winds, it was nearly impossible for the dogs to pick up a scent. Some say that they couldn't find the scent because Asia couldn't have left on foot, while others believe that it's strictly because of the rain and the splattering and scattering of the scent. I do believe that the dogs couldn't find a scent because of the weather. I really think that that was it. I don't think that it wasn't that she necessarily left on foot. The ground search, though, would provide no answers and no indication of where Asia could possibly be. So on February 15th, a Mickey Mouse hair bow, candy wrappers matching the candy the basketball players received after their game, and an unknown girl's photo, a pen, were found in a chicken shed about 600 feet away from the area she had last been seen by the truckers and connected back to Asia. The next day, Asia's mother tells police that her daughter's favorite clothing is missing from her bedroom and suspects that she must have packed them before leaving that night. Now, it's said that she was wearing jeans and a bright white t-shirt that was from a family reunion that they had had, I believe, the year prior, but 
this varies as well. But think about that it was only 35 degrees out and she wasn't wearing a coat. So unfortunately, the official search was called off by February 20th, only six days after she went missing. And at this point, police turned their attention to interviewing witnesses. They spent three hours stopping motorists on North Carolina 18, hoping that anyone would have seen something. And this kind of perplexes me a bit because I understand that there are a lot of truckers and people who pass by on this highway on a regular basis. So they're hoping someone would have been driving it during those three hours of their traffic stop, would have also been driving it six days prior in the middle of the night and had maybe seen something. But it feels kind of like a half-assed idea to me. I mean, I get it in theory, but ultimately, did they really expect to find any information doing this? What were they? Maybe they were looking for something that just doesn't make sense to me. But no information of value surfaced. And Aquila and Harold had a billboard erected with Aisha's face and the promise of a $45,000 reward on March 14th where Aisha had been last spotted, just a month after her disappearance. No information would come to light until August 3rd, 2001, 18 months after her disappearance and only two days prior to what would be her 11th birthday. On that day, her backpack was found by a contractor wrapped in two black plastic trash bags. The contractor found papers nearby that had Aisha's name on them, jotted it down, and later brought it up to his wife, who immediately remembered why that name was so important, and they called the police. Now, when police opened the garbage bag, they found her backpack with the Dr. Seuss book in it from Aisha's school, but not one that she had checked out as far as the school could tell. In fact, they couldn't tell who checked it out. And also a new Kids on the Block concert t-shirt, which was not something her parents said that she owned, nor did it sound like something she would have worn. Police searched within a three-mile radius around where the bag was found, but again, nothing was discovered. And if you listen to different podcasts on this, True Crime Garage does a fantastic job covering this case, as they always do with the cases that they covered. It's my number one go-to true crime podcast. When they talk about it, they discuss a few things here that I just want to kind of touch on. Number one, a lot of people speculate as to why the bag was wrapped in the garbage bag. They actually make a really good point on the show saying that, in their opinion, it's more than likely that the the backpack was placed in two garbage bags to just chuck it out the window so that it wouldn't have looked as conspicuous as a child's backpack sitting on the side of the road. There's trash bags on the road all the time, especially on highways like that. So it wouldn't have looked as eye-catching if it was just a plain black trash bag on the side of the road. And I have to agree here. I don't think it was to preserve evidence. I think it was more so that it was hoped that it would just kind of be scooped up with the rest of trash. But since there was ongoing construction in that area, it happened to be pushed down the road more and eventually turned over and over until it wound up in that construction site, which is where it was discovered. So years later... I mean, 16 years later, in March of 2016, the FBI reveals to the public that it was reported by a witness that Aisha was seen getting into a large green 1970s-style vehicle with rust around the wheels on the morning of her disappearance. The vehicle was compared to either a 1970s Lincoln Mark IV or a Ford Thunderbird. Guilty enough that I had to Google what these looked like, but they are, in fact, huge, large sedans. 16 years after her disappearance, there's still a joint task force of FBI, local police, and detectives who meet regularly to discuss Aisha's case. Her face remains on the billboard near Shelby, North Carolina, and all over bulletins posted in shops in and around the area. Her name has not been forgotten, 
but no arrests have been made. And armchair detectives have pointed fingers at a number of potential persons of interest. But interestingly enough, very few people believe that her parents had anything to do with her disappearance, which is kind of the first place we all go. And I have to come back here and say this a little bit. I agree first that the parents weren't involved, but not completely. This is one of those things that I think if I started to try to elaborate more on what I get intuitively, one, I don't want to say anything that is unfair to make an accusation around. But I also, I don't want to start inventing facts. So I'm only going to go with the small intuitive hits that I'm getting here. And that's to say that JonBenet Ramsey's parents were never suspected. And I know that they're still not suspected and they cleared the parents and yada, yada, yada. But if you go back and listen to my JonBenet case, you know that I don't think that they should have cleared the parents. I think that there was involvement from one of her parents a little bit more so than than police have kind of led on to. Um, they do say that they cleared them. Again, I don't know if I buy that, but I digress. It's not my place to really say. And if you've listened to the show for a while, if you're not new here, then you know that I believe in preserving myself as well as anything that maybe law enforcement doesn't want others to know. I believe that there's a lot more to this story than we as the public will ever know. And there's a lot more that public officials know, which is sometimes why I believe that I don't get as much information or other intuitives don't get as much information because it wouldn't be helpful. And one thing that I ask as I connect is to only receive information of the highest good. And if I'm receiving information of the highest good, it wouldn't be of the highest good to get in the way of an investigation. So you can take that as you will. Those are my ethics around all of this. I do not believe that anyone was waiting to meet her at her door or just down the road or anything like that. I believe that her being taken was actually a crime of opportunity. I believe that she was seen on foot by various truckers and passers-by, but I do not believe she got all that way on her own. I see her in a vehicle and out of a vehicle and in a vehicle again. I don't know that it's the same vehicle. I just see the in, out, in. And I, I think that she didn't necessarily leave because of the basketball game, but it was a point of contention maybe more within her family than it was with her. Kind of like I get a sense of, not wanting to disappoint. And, I, you know, I'm just, I'm not entirely sure there. And I don't want to elaborate and invent things that I don't see intuitively. My imagination doesn't belong here. So I also believe that she was seen by various truckers and passersby and, and that she was, she kind of left because of this culmination of things going on, but her basketball game wasn't the reason she left or found herself on Highway 18 that cold early morning. I believe she thought she was headed one direction, possibly toward family or a friendly, helpful person, but definitely toward someone she knew, like her grandmother, her aunt, a relative, someone within the church that she knew lived nearby. But she definitely was going the wrong way. And I think she just kind of got turned around. And I apologize for any background noise that you all hear. We are kind of in a state of upheaval in this house as we pack and get ready to go. Um, so I called... I called numerous intuitive friends of mine to see what they got, and all of us received something about her father, though none of us saw him as directly responsible for her disappearance or death, and I do believe she is past. I felt that it could have had something to do with someone from her church, but again, 
almost as if that's not a direct connection to her death or disappearance. I think a few perfect storms kind of happened for various people who were involved but not connected to each other. A number of things went wrong in her life that night, that morning, and none of those offenders who were connected to each other, none of them were connected to each other, but they all kind of happened to stumble upon her at the same time. Think like if she was in a vehicle with one person and she managed to escape, then in thinking she was escaping, she stumbled upon someone who wasn't necessarily helpful, but was more harmful, if that makes sense. Ultimately, I feel like she was taken by someone who found her and snatched her up and that her body is across state lines. I think they won't find her because of where she is. No one knows to look for her. And I would venture to say that that when she, I mean, I do think she is across state lines and that she was alive when she was taken across state lines. And I do believe she was in a tractor trailer at the end. This case is almost as baffling to me as the case of Brian Schaefer or Bryce's Pisa or even Maura Murray. There's so little to go on and the intuitive hits that I did receive, they're just not enough for piecing together much of anything. I do believe that one day her case will be solved, but years and years from now, and I believe the person who took her drove that route many times and that opportunity struck and it was taken. I believe this case will get kind of like a deathbed confession, something like that, where one can't truly say whether or not there's truth behind it for sure, but there will be truth behind it. And I hate to leave everyone hanging like that, but that's really all I've got for you this week. If you know anything about the disappearance of Asia Degree, please contact the FBI. And thank you once again for your patience in the irregularity of episodes, as well as the random background noises. And like I said, it may continue a bit through May and June, but we'll be back to 100% weekly episodes by the end of June. We close on a new house hopefully the week that this episode drops and are in the process of packing and moving in crazy schedules and summer colds and drain spouses who like to open doors during podcast and video recordings. And for those of you who have stood by the show through these bumps, I cannot thank you enough. So thank you for listening to Murder and Mediumship.